Thanks, Ken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of another year. Father, as we look forward um, to this new year, we pray that you would give us um, a sense of expectation that you are the God who still works. You work in us. You work in our world. God, I pray that you would help us to understand how we can live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, understanding that, understanding that, of course, who we are in you is determined by Christ, by grace through faith alone. But Father, now that we have, in fact, received that grace, that we're called to something. And so, Father, let us, let us live in um, a, a sense of expectation Enjoy holiness, all of the things that make for a good and godly life. Father, I pray that as we come to the, te- the text today, um, Father, that we would receive it with a spirit of grace and joy. And God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Happy New Year. How many of you guys watched football last night? Yeah. How many of you wish you did not stay up as late as you did? Watching, yeah. And most people here have no regrets, so that's the way to close out 2022. Great job. Um, Well, I'm Kyle Fisher. I'm on staff here um, at church. Happy New Year once again. Um, Our text today is Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 25. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, whenever I graduated college in 2014, I knew I was going to move to Dallas, knew I was going to attend Dallas Seminary, and so in the the two and a half months between when I graduated and when I knew that I was moving, I needed a job to make some money because seminary is just the sort of like four to five, like you just lose four to five years of like just any ability to make any money, Um, and so I needed to make something just to have. Um, so I could float. I didn't realize that the transition from Arkadelphia, Arkansas, to Dallas, Texas was going to be as expensive as it was, but I learned very quickly um, that it was going to be quite expensive. So um, I I had three jobs in the span of two and a half months. The first one was um, weed eating, like 14 hours a day, and it was so terrible, I quit it. Um, And then the next job I had was delivering phone books, and um, they gave you like a tracker to make sure that you you put something that no one wanted on their door. You had to like put it there and click this button and they, they would track you. So that, that wasn't a great job. Um, the third job that I had um, was actually the best. And I effectively was this like general laborer for um, like a trucking company that was starting up like an operation in Texarkana, which is where I was from. Um, I went to college and I got a liberal arts degree in Christian studies and biblical languages, which is of course very marketable in today's gig economy. Um, so moving from like reading uh, a bunch of dead languages and stuff like that to like general labor at a trucking company was a bit of a transition, um, but I enjoyed it. I got to put together like desks and um, like shop back just this massive warehouse, like garage area. But the reason I was actually hired was to paint a chain link fence that was probably about two football fields in length. It was rusty, um, and they wanted me to paint it with this like black oil-based paint. Um, So I basically was just caked in paint until I moved to Dallas. Um, As I was painting, 
in case you couldn't tell by the whole like liberal arts college degree and the haircut, I'm not exactly what you call like handy. Um, and so when I got there, they, they gave me just a bunch of different things to try to paint. Um, they gave me like a roller, so I started rolling the chain link, and it looked as bad as you can imagine it looked. Um, and it was very inefficient, so then they handed me these paintbrushes, and that was somehow even less efficient. The guy I was working with was actually like a trained like commercial painter, and he was losing his mind at like how terrible this was. So he's like lobbying, hey, let's go get a commercial sprayer, let's knock this thing out. But once again, they hired me. They're not looking to be efficient and professional per se. They just want this thing painted at like $10 an hour. And so we never get the sprayer. The guy gets so frustrated that he, he grabs his backpack and, and walks down the street, and I never see him again. So he, he leaves. He tries to convince me to go, and I'm like, dude, I, I need this job. In my mind, I'm like, I will put my hands in paint and I will grasp chain links. If I have to do that, that's what I have to do. That's fine. Well, shortly thereafter, the guy, Tony, who was our boss, walked out, uh, I think it was the next day, with something that looked like this. You guys know what this is? This is a car detailing glove. Do you know what it's used for? Detailing cars, yeah. So he walks out with one of these. It's actually like rounder. It looks like a big old cotton ball. And he says, hey, pour some paint in there. And I, I want you to dip your gloves in the paint and paint the fence. So I, you know, okay, it's $10 an hour or so. And you just kind of start rubbing like the fence. And um, it was the worst thing you would have ever seen in the world. The reason why I bring that up, you, you can learn a number of things from that story about me and about Tony. Um, and about the, the startup that was happening in Texarkana, the, the, the operation that was starting up. But the, two re- the, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is I think this introduces two ideas that are present in today's text, and it's the idea of expectation and, and tool, right? Um, being properly equipped in and what it is that we should expect of the Christian life. Um, what we expect of a job, right, determines the tools that we use for the job, and the tools that we use determine whether or not we're successful in that job. So we found that the, 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 the winning formula for the fence was you actually buy a, a really cheap sprayer, you break one, you use the second one, you spray the posts, and you roll the links. And that's good enough, I guess. What you use for tools determines whether or not you're successful. And if you end up trying to paint a fence with you know, a Mickey Mouse glove, it's not going to go well. In the same way, the Christian life um, has something that I think we should expect of it. Specifically as it relates to us becoming more like Jesus. Uh, The term that we use for that is sanctification. There is something that we should expect God to do in us. And there is a tool that he has given us that aids in carrying out and bringing forth that expectation to fruition in our lives. What should we expect God to do in our lives as it relates to sanctification? What tool has he given us for that sanctification? We may have never asked ourselves that question before. Should we actually expect something of God? And I think the answer is yes. Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25, I think will give us the answer to these questions. Paul writes, 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So that's today's text. Lots of wanting to do, not doing, doing and not want to doing, and doing and stuff like that. What in the world does this have to do with expectation and being properly equipped or, or properly tooled for Christian living as it pertains to becoming more like Jesus. Let's start with the first, or with the second idea, that being properly tooled or equipped. What does it mean to live a life that is equipped for godliness? The first thing that Paul calls our attention to um, is, is law, this idea of the Mosaic law. Now, Romans 7 is a chapter all about how the law functions Um, as it relates to the Christian life. And and we get this from uh, verse 1 of this passage. He says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Paul in this chapter is speaking to a group of people here in Rome, the Christians, who were comprised of Jews, but also likely God-fearing Gentiles who had looked upon the Jewish way of living and said, hey, that's, I, I want to be in that. I want to be a part of that. So whenever Paul writes Romans 7, he's dealing primarily with this topic of the Mosaic law. Now, Within the broader context of Romans, this makes sense. Romans 1 through 4 is basically laying out that everyone is unrighteous in God's sight, and the only way that we can be made righteous is by trusting in Christ. And trusting in Christ, God then declares us righteous. Romans 5 through 8 is effectively what does life look like now that we have been declared righteous and how is it that us believing in Jesus actually allows us um, to be righteous? So Romans 5, Paul lays out, lays out the case that Jesus is what's known as our federal head. That is, he is our representative. Just as Adam was our representative and his sin spread death to us, so also through Christ's obedience, Christ as our representative spread life to us, righteousness to us. Romans 6 Because we believed in Jesus, what happened then is we were joined to Christ and what was true of him becomes true of us. That whenever he died to the power of sin over us, so also we died to the power of sin over us so as to make us slaves. And because of that, because we are saved by grace through faith, we are no longer under the demands of the law. Paul says we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. And so because of that, Paul now has to deal with what role does the law have in the life of a believer? Now, for us, we probably don't really think much about the Mosaic law in our day-to-day lives. Um, We're not a Messianic Jewish community here. Um, if If you were, or if you grew up in this time and you were Jewish, 
The law was the way, the code of living. It was the pattern or the type of living that influenced every sphere of your life, from what you ate to what you wore, to who you associated with, how you could associate with them. And so what's happening with this early, this early Christian community is they're receiving the teachings of Jesus. They're, they're receiving those through the apostles. They're receiving it through the apostles, not only as they speak to them, but also as they're starting to write stuff like Romans down. And they're trying to square, how do we understand what Jesus has taught us, what Paul is teaching us by the Spirit? Um, how do we square that with this thing that we received 1,500 years ago that we know to be true? How do we understand what Paul is saying when he says you're not under law, but you're under grace? How are we supposed to live our lives? By what mechanism or by what power are we supposed to live so that we can live lives that are pleasing and honorable to God? So to put ourselves in their shoes, it would be like you study to become a U.S. citizen. You, do, you go through all the hoops. You learn about the law. You learn about the Constitution, all this stuff. You get done with it. You pass it. And the guy or whoever it is tells you, great job. Now you don't have to worry about any of that. You're just under conscience. And you'd think, hold on, why did you make me do all that? In the same way, these people early on in this first, these first generations of Christians were trying to figure out how is it that we live lives that are pleasing to God if we're not under the law, but under grace? What tool should we use? Paul starts with addressing the law first. Verse 14. Notice what he says about the law. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. If you back up to verse 13, he says, did that which is good, and here he's referring to the law, did that which is good, the law, then bring me death. In, in both of these instances, Paul affirms the moral quality of the law. He says that it is both spiritual and good. When he uses the term spiritual, that's not a new age term that we think of whenever we think of spiritual, where it's this sort of... Um, mysterious mysticism. He's meaning that it comes from God, who is spirit. It's, it's derived, it's received from the Holy Spirit. It's divine in its nature, and it is good. So whenever Paul thinks about the, the law as a tool for Christian living, the first point that he wants to make to these people who held highly to the Mosaic law is, the thing that you revere is good. It is spiritual. It's a good thing. But as he continues... Verse 15, he says, let's back up. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So Paul says, the law is good, it's spiritual. If I fail to carry out the law, that doesn't mean that the law is good. In fact, my desire to carry out the law, but inability to do it, shows that I agree with the law that it's good. Verse 17, so now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, when Paul looks at the law as a tool for Christian living, he affirms, hey, this, this thing that we've received from God is divine. It's good. It's spiritual. But when he looks at the state that he's in being sold under sin's power... While the law is good and while it lacks no moral quality and while it has no deficiency in terms of moral, ethical demands, it does have a deficiency in power to make him righteous. It has a deficiency in power to make Paul 
righteous. He's, he lays it out. I, I want to do what's right, but I, I don't do it. I have no ability to do the right thing. I have the desire to do what is right, verse 18, but not the ability to carry it out. See, when Paul examines the law as a tool for Christian living, at no point does he say, hey, the the law is actually bad. He says, no, the law is good, but what I find is that sin dwelling in me holds me captive. And even though I want to do the right thing, I don't have the power to do it. So when Paul looks at this as a tool for Christian living, while the law lacks no moral quality, it lacks power to make him righteous. And whenever you read Romans, the whole point of why Paul is eager to preach the gospel, this goes all the way back to Romans chapter 1. The reason why Paul is eager to write to these Roman Christians that he's never met, verse 16 of Romans 1 gives us the reason why he's, he's eager to preach the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The point and the reason why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel is because in the gospel there is both power and righteousness. And yet when Paul looks at the law, he sees a standard that is fully righteous, but doesn't have the power to make him righteous. The whole reason why Paul's been writing this letter is he wants to show that in the gospel, there is not only righteousness, but there is power. And as great as the law is, it does not give us the power to live a Christian life. It serves as a tool. It shows us what God God values and what he loves. If we were to talk about today, there may be a parallel between something like You know, setting New Year's goals or New Year's rules, they're great. They may help us give us a pattern for right living, but anyone who's ever set a resolution knows that just simply desiring to do something doesn't mean you have the power to do it. And so when Paul talks about this idea, whenever he addresses this idea of being properly equipped, being properly tooled for the Christian life, the power does not lie in the law. This is not a new idea. It's, it's found in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. He says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to, the God, to God. One of the reasons we have the law is it, it holds us accountable. 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The other reason we have the law is it shows us just how sinful we are apart from Jesus. That's in the verses immediately preceding our passage today. A a month and a half or so ago, Michelle called me. She's like, I I turn on the dishwasher. When I turn it on, water just started coming out from under it into our kitchen, which is just like so amazing because if you know anything about our house saga, our house just has a thing with like water not being where it's supposed to be. It's just really into water not being where it's supposed to be. So I go home, and once again, me being the very, very handy person that I am, pull out the dishwasher. There's a hole behind the dishwasher that's just in our wall. And I look at the line between our garbage disposal and our dishwasher, and apparently some rat had decided to just, like, make a snack out of it. And so anytime you turn it on, the water would just shoot right out onto the floor. So pull it out, change out the part, don't patch up the hole. I remember talking to my mom. She said, hey, you know, 
if, if that was a rat, you probably should patch the hole up and like wage war on the, wat, on the rat. So I was like, no, nah, it'll be fine. About two days later, she turns on the dishwasher. Guess what happens? Water comes out. But this time, instead of making a snack out of the cheap part, it decides to make it out of like the specialty factory ordered part, which is like $70. So pull it out again. And in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'll patch up the hole this time. Patch up that hole, do a number of other things. I didn't buy the specialty. I did not learn my lesson. I did not buy the specialty part. I bought this thing called Flex Tape, which is great, but it is marketed as a temporary fix. And guess how I used it? As a permanent, I was like wrapping it seven times, the biblical number. You will be fixed, right? (laughs) So it works for like two weeks. Water comes out again. Finally learned my lesson, buy a specialty part. The reason why I bring that up is in the same way that this flex tape wasn't actually the solution, there was no ultimate power to it. Trying to live life by the power of the law, there's, there's no actual power in that. There's no power in looking at rules and saying, I need to be a better person because we've all been there and we've realized even though we set rules for ourselves or even though we try and follow, say, the rules in the New Testament, Simply having those rules is not the power to do the right thing. That naturally raises the question, where is the power found? Verse 24. Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Whenever someone cries out for deliverance, that shows two things. Or it shows one thing in particular, but two things in this context. Paul has already established, one, that the law cannot deliver him. But two, here... He also acknowledges that deliverance or salvation does not lie in himself, in some like inner light. Deliverance lies outside of him. That's the whole nature of deliverance. You don't cry out for deliverance if you have the ability to deliver yourself. Deliverance is found, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, is found in God, but specifically through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 of chapter 8 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? So if you're in the flesh, if you don't have the Spirit, you cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so the implication here is that, that you have the Holy Spirit, you are now able to please God. Of course, not because you are good in and of yourself, but you now have God dwelling inside of you who declares you to be righteous and who is now empowering you to do the right thing. The proper tool for Christian living is not law. It is the Holy Spirit. Spirit, not law, is the proper tool for Christian living. Tool is a bad word to use with the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not a, he's not this impersonal force. He's, he's the third person of the Trinity. But when it comes to finding where the power comes from, it's the Holy Spirit. Whenever I put the flex tape on the dishwasher, it wasn't really until I used that that I was able to understand just how how broken the part was. That's the way the law works. It's not until you look at the law that you're able to understand just how broken you are. Paul makes that point. It's not until the law said hey, you shall not covet, that he understood just how bad it was to covet. But by using the flex tape and putting it on there, there was no power in actually fixing it. It wasn't until I ordered the right part, put it on, that it was fixed. It's not until we live by the power of the Spirit 
that our lives begin to be sanctified. It's the only way it works. So that naturally raises the question, what should we expect of the Christian life? That's the proper tool. That's, that's really the main point of this passage. You have, to, you, you have to live by the Spirit, right? That's the passage that was read at the very beginning, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and, not, and you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. If you, insofar as you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a promise. So what should we expect of the Christian life as it pertains to our sanctification? And this is where I think the text gets really excited. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you probably heard this passage preached from the standpoint of Paul as a believer struggling with sin. I'm not going to deny that believers um, uh, struggle with sin. Far from it, right? All of us know what it feels like to have maybe a sin that eats our lunch or has our number or whatever um, figure of speech you want to use. But I don't think that's really the stance that Paul is taking in this passage. I think what Paul is doing is he's talking about his inability to please God before he knew Jesus. As a Jew who had the law, but was trying to live as if the law was a power. That was going to give him power to please God. Here's my argument. Let's go first to verse 17. We're going to go from like the less important points to the more important points. Verse 17, he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Whenever you look at what Paul, whenever Paul uses the word um, dwelling within, this is the only place, I believe, in the Pauline letters where Paul writes about sin dwelling in him. In almost every other instance, do you know what he writes about dwelling within him or within believers? The Holy Spirit. There's something that happens that changes whenever you become a Christian. You are no longer dominated by sin. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And it's the reason why when Paul addresses his letters, he does not greet his congregations as greetings, sinners at Galatia. What does he say? Saints. And the word for saints is the same word that means holy. Just in Greek, you just put an article on front of it, on the front of it, and it, it changes from Holy to the Holy One or the Holy Ones, the saints. Second thing I want to draw your attention to. That one doesn't, that, that one doesn't win the argument. Not only does Paul talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling within believers as opposed to sin. But look at verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can Paul the believer say that nothing good dwells in him? No, the Holy Spirit dwells in Paul as a believer, just like he dwells in us if we have trusted in Jesus. Furthermore, can Paul the believer say that he has no ability to do the right thing whenever he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit? No. We saw in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, and you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. We saw later in Romans that you now have the capacity to please God if you have the Holy Spirit, if you walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the most important points come in, in verse 14, verses 14 and 23. Verse 14 says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, what does it mean for someone to be sold? For a person to be sold? Well, they become what? They become a slave. And specifically, Paul says of himself, 
I'm sold under sin as a slave. And, and, and just in case you're wondering if I'm, I'm playing fast and loose with this idea of being sold, in Matthew's gospel, the same word is used of the unforgiving servant being sold into slavery. Now, the reason why this is important is because in chapter 6, Paul makes it painstakingly clear that for believers, their new master is not sin. It is Christ. It is righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him. That is Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in a... Sorry. Uh, was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Translate that easily as the body of sin might be made powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Whenever you trusted Jesus, you were joined to him. And whenever he died, you died to the power of sin so that you are no longer a slave to sin. Skip down to verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. When Paul has been writing this section of what it means to to now be believers in Jesus, he has made it painstakingly clear. You are not a slave to sin. It does not own you. Jesus has bought you at a price, you are his now. You're a slave to Christ. You're a slave to righteousness. So whenever Paul writes here in Romans seven fourteen that he's sold under sin as a slave, unless he's just completely forgotten what he said in Romans 6, he's not referring here to a struggle of the believer with sin. He's talking about what it was like to try and live by the power of the law before he knew Jesus. Verse 23. I see in my members, or verse 22, let's back up a little bit. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, something that would have been very common for a Jew in that day and age, and today as well. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and look at this phrase, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, go to chapter 8, verse 1. This is definitely speaking of believers here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from what? The law of sin and death. Paul as the believer and we as believers have been set free from being captive to the law of sin. You cannot be captive to the law of sin and freed from the law of sin at the same time. And so what Paul is doing here in 7, Romans chapter 7, he's not talking about his struggle with sin. I'm not denying that we don't. That I'm not denying that we do struggle with sin. What he's doing is he's describing a state of utter defeat apart from the grace of Jesus poured out in the life of the believer through the Holy Spirit in which we can now live lives that are pleasing to God, not by our own power, not through our own strength, but by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. Remember, Paul is eager to preach this gospel, and this gospel is not just a series of nice ideas. It is a gospel of power. What this shows us, I think, is that using law as our power for sanctification resembles life before Christ, not after. Using law as our power for sanctification resembles life before Christ, not after. 
The law is useful. It helps us understand who God is. It helps us understand what he values. It helps us understand how we fall short of that. But it is not the power to make us righteous. It is not the power to save us. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why, why bring this up? Is this just it's an academic exercise? It's great. We can learn some things. Let's go from here. What you expect God to do in your life will in many ways determine the tools that you employ, and it will determine the approach that you have to life. If you expect your life to be utterly ruled by defeat, can we honestly say that we'll pursue life in Christ by the Spirit if, if, we, if we believe that even with the Spirit, our life is just going to be characterized by defeat? I think the text shows us that no, as believers, it's not that every single time we approach temptation, we just catch win after win after win. I don't think the text is teaching us that we ultimately just become perfect beings before Jesus returns. I don't think this text is teaching us that there isn't a particular sin that we can struggle with from time to time. What I think God through this text is teaching us is that the life of the believer can ultimately expect to have victory over sin. In the ultimate sense, in the new heaven and the new earth, but also now with the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, walk by the Spirit. You will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. Insofar as we walk in the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So what is it that we should expect? What is it that we should expect from God as it relates to us growing more and more like Jesus? Expect your new life in Christ to look ultimately victorious. Expect your new life in Christ to look ultimately victorious. All of this is contingent upon whether or not you walk by the Spirit. But if you do, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? You learn what He loves. You pursue what He loves. You learn what, what he, he teaches us through his word. The word of God is called the sword of the spirit. You live in a community that's characterized by the spirit. You take the, the, the situations in your life or maybe the, the deficiencies that you feel in your life as it relates to your own sanctification and you present them before the Holy Spirit and you cry out and you say, God, help me to become more like you. I think you should expect that God will actually do that. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons why people read, read this like Paul is, is dealing with his struggle with sin as a believer, and they're not bad reasons, per se. I think one of the reasons why people read this passage as if Paul is struggling with sin as a believer is I think if you, if you truly know Jesus, you want, to, you want to live humbly before him. You don't want to act like, oh, I have this ability, I have this power, I'm so good, right? We all know what it's like to have done the wrong thing the night before or whenever it was, and we feel that weight. And so we don't want to act like something that we're not. I think the other reason is we tend to read this passage from like our subjective experience once again, we all know what it's like to have failed the night before. 
or earlier today. And we resonate with, I, I, I don't do what I want to do, and I, what I want to do, I don't do. But the thing about the way Paul writes, really Romans 6 through 8 overall, is he doesn't write it from the perspective of the way that we feel. He writes it from the perspective that there is an objective reality that has happened in the life of the believer. You were crucified with Christ. And unless Jesus can be uncrucified, and he can't, who you are in Christ is secure. And the reason that he was crucified, at least one of them, was so that sin as a power would have no power in your life so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is why we can expect God to work ultimate victory in our lives as it relates to us becoming more like Jesus because God has done something. You have been tied into that thing and the whole purpose of him having done that thing is to make you more and more like Jesus. It's not the only purpose, but it's a big one. Expect your new life in Christ to look ultimately victorious. I think a few points with this. Once again, I want to reiterate, I'm not advocating that all we do is we go out from here and we just, we just win, 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 no matter what. You're welcome. I'm not saying that we become perfect people immediately. I want to offer though the challenge that we should expect that God will make us look more like his son. And I think a few points of wisdom, maybe. The first one is this. We tend to measure, once again, because we read this from like this internal, we, we feel the weight of having done the wrong thing. The nature of sanctification is it's, it's a long game. We tend to measure our sanctification in the day-to-day. We tend to take stock of where we are in terms of following Jesus immediately after we failed. That's a bad way to do it, number one. Sanctification, I don't think, is primarily meant to be measured in the day-to-day or the week-to-week or the month. It's, it's, it's year-to-year and really even decade-to-decade. Who I was as an 18-year-old and who I am now as a 30-year-old, can't really grow a beard, is far, it, is far different. And, and Christ has done a good work in me. This doesn't mean like I've arrived. But I think if you examine your life since the time that you trusted in Jesus up until now, there's something that's changed in you. I think the other thing, as just sort of a, maybe a point of, of wisdom as you approach this idea that we should expect victory, is that, of course, ultimately, us becoming perfect is whenever Jesus returns. But the power to live lives that please God is present now. And if we choose to live by the Spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do we live with this expectation? Dr. Dodson, my, um, one of my professors in undergrad, and um, he's now become a friend of mine, which is pretty cool. Um, he's coming out with a book on this, and he offers a number of... Um, a number of like application points, but I think two of them are, are really good for today. When it comes to living in the expectation that God will make our lives ultimately victorious, I want to offer the idea that 
confess. In the areas in which sin has been around, confess that to a believer that you love and trust and who understands the gospel of, of Christ is a good news. God loves you, right? And he also has, has called you out of this thing. The other one I want to offer is counsel. There, there are times where we have things like addiction and, and, and maybe, maybe it would be good to go see someone who, who has really good training in some of this stuff. Someone who believes truly that Christ has given us the power to overcome these things, but who also has maybe a few particulars on how to do that. That's helpful. Spirit, not law, is a proper tool for our sanctification. Using law as our power for sanctification resembles life before Christ, not after. We should expect our new life in Christ by the power of the Spirit to look ultimately victorious. We're not yet what we will be, when Christ returns. But what we are now is not who, we're, who we were. Live in that and expect life to look different by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for all that you've done for us and in us. And God, we thank you that who we are is not based on our might or our ability. It's based on what you have done. Who we are is also not based on the way that we feel. It is based on an objective reality of who you are and what you have done for us. Help us to love you more. Help us to live by the Spirit. Father, help us to be people who truly do expect that you will, you will bring victory to our lives. Not through our own power, but through yours. It's your name that we pray. Amen.